Welcome back to Digital Health Unplugged, the podcast in which we take a look at what is making headlines in the world of NHS IT. I'm your host, Andrea Downey, and I'm senior reporter here at Digital Health. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Digital Health Unplugged, the podcast bringing you all you need to know about NHS IT. As always, I am your host, Andrea Downey, and I'm joined today by the Interim Chief Executive of NHS Digital, Simon Bolton. Simon took up the post when former Chief Executive Sarah Wilkinson stepped down in June, coming across from his previous role of Chief Information Officer for NHS Test and Trace. And before that, he was the CIO for Jaguar Land Rover. So I can only assume that after this podcast, I'm getting a very fancy car. Simon, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Andrea. And uh, my apologies, but I got I don't have access to the JLR car scheme anymore. Oh, this is such a disappointment. I'm not even sure I could trust my driving on London roads, but it would have been nice to just say I've got a Jag for a bit. <laughs> um, but I'm very excited you've been able to join us on the podcast. I know you're a very busy man. Um, so I guess the most obvious place to start with all the questions I've got for you is how have your first few months been at NHS Digital? Well, if I'm going to summarise it, I think I'd just say busy, very, <laughs> yeah. very busy. There's an awful lot going on. Clearly, we're still dealing with the um, uh, the COVID pandemic, but there's a huge amount going on across the NHS. Aside from that, um, a real initiative around digital transform or digitally enabled transformation of, uh, of the NHS, helping us kind of to move forward. Uh, and also dealing with some of the consequences of the COVID pandemic and, and the crisis that we're seeing in um uh, emergency care and um, uh, and elective care. So just a huge amount going on that we're trying to grapple with. Um, so yeah, busy would be the summary. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I don't envy you on that. It sounds like you've got quite a lot on your plate. Um, and I'm sure we are going to circle back to get to all of that later in the podcast. But first of all, I wanted to talk to you about a big piece of work that's come out this week, uh, which is really important for digitization in the NHS. And that is the what good looks like guidance and also the who pays for what guidance. So I do know that this is an NHSX led project, but I did want to talk to you about maybe what your thoughts are on it and how NHS Digital is involved in supporting the implementation of the guidance. So I think both of these bits of work, what good looks like um, and who pays for what, are really incredibly important. Mm. Because one of my observations about um, digital in the NHS, and I don't mean NHS digital, I mean more broadly, is that it's quite disparate. Uh, And actually finding a way to uh, understand what we all do better uh, would be an incredibly good thing. What are we supposed to do? What's uh, one of the questions that I've asked um, in all of the um, visits I've done to trusts is, so what's the role of the centre? Um, mm. Because I think that's a profoundly important question so that we all understand the value that we bring. Um, and it's very easy to kind of look at these different parts of the organisation, um, the wider organisation, and kind of think, oh, what do they do in NHS Digital or NHSX? Um, uh, and actually, the what good looks like and who pays for what starts to answer some of those questions. Mm. What's the centre there for? What are the accountabilities of the trusts? And ultimately, who pays for the things that need to be done? 
Yeah. And something I got from it was very much the importance of co-design and collaboration, which I know is something that you've mentioned a few times in your time at NHS Digital. And I am going to circle back to that later. Um, But beforehand, I wanted to go back to what your overall goals are for NHS Digital. Have you got have you got a set amount of things that you want to achieve in your time there? Well, there were there were really three things that very quickly became apparent to me that we needed to uh, sort out, if that's the right phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, given the experience of the last uh, 18 months or so of the, the pandemic and the amount of pressure that the whole system's been under. Um, so those three things are been, uh, top of the list, absolutely organisational resiliency. Um, so I inherit a team from, ter- uh, from Sarah that's been doing an amazing job, but like most of the rest of the NHS, it's been very stretched, is very tired, um, has been heavily reliant on um, working with external parties, you know, um, uh, temporary staff. Um, and as a result, we've got an organisation which isn't as resilient as I would like. Mm-hmm. So making sure we've got the right number of people in the right place doing the right thing is top of my agenda. Um, and it's, it's all about people. Um, the next thing we've got to get right is ensure that the projects that we're working on are the right projects and the right priority. So we're being asked to do an awful lot of stuff um, from different parts of um, the NHS. Uh, and, and frankly, we've got more things to do than we've got capacity to deliver. So we need to make sure we're focusing on the absolute priorities of um, our partners at, in the front line in NHSX and NHSEI. Um, so getting control of the portfolio and making sure we execute against the, um, the things that are most important. And, and as part of that, my third item, and I'm, you know, before you circle around it, I'm going, to, um, I'm going to come back to that word collaboration because yeah. I just think it's so important. Um, I really want to improve the collaboration that we've got across the system, starting with, um, if you like, the centre, uh, NHSEI, NHSX and NHSD. Um, uh, one of the things, and I, I talked about my visits to trusts, um, often I get asked the question, so what's the difference between NHSX and NHSD? Yeah. Um, and and it's, it's kind of a, I, I really understand the question, um, but we shouldn't in some ways be seen as different. You know, we're here to support the delivery of healthcare across, uh, across the nation. Um, and how we work should be seamless to the rest of the organisation. And, and honestly, I don't think it is seamless and it needs to be. Um, so we need to do a much better job of making sure we're joined up, making sure our priorities are the same, making sure that we're working together constructively and that we're doing that together with colleagues in NHS EI. So, you know, most of what we do, not all of it because we, we support other um, bodies as well, but most of what we do in NHS Digital should be completely aligned to the priorities uh, that NHS England have to improve healthcare across the UK. Yeah, that's a lot of work. That's a big few tasks. <laughs> I told you I was busy. You're very busy. You weren't lying. <laughs> um, so this might be a tough question because I don't know if you, if anyone has the answer to this, but how do you go about actually achieving all of those goals? Uh, like any tough task, you try and break it down into achievable chunks. Mm-hmm. So the organisational resiliency, as an example, um, we've got a, a program of work underway to uh, bluntly do some recruitment 
uh, go into the market and look, look for some people to help us deliver against the portfolio to help us make sure we got resources to support the um the, uh, the change projects which are, are underway those things that i talk about as priorities um the most interesting one for me actually is the, the improvement of collaboration and i'm a big believer with uh, in the, the phrase people work with people um, mm -hmm. it's about relationship it's about building trust um and trust comes from uh, demonstrating that you've got some empathy, you understand what your colleagues are trying to achieve um, and that you want to be supportive. Well, one of the observations I've got is that um, it's, it's very easy to look at people in different organizations or even people in different part of your own organization and see them as a different team. Mm -hmm. um, and too often, we're in different teams, kind of uh, different end of the pitch. What we should be doing is thinking of ourselves as a single team aiming towards a single goal. And that requires quite a lot of work, just building relationships um, yeah. across the different uh, different parts of the organization. So, I, and I see that as a very significant part of my role, both building those relationships um, with my peers, um, across NHSX and NHS England and um, uh, in the, the ICSs and the trusts, but also demonstrating that I'm doing that. So leading by example. So uh, leading by example is something, and it's, it's one of my kind of personal leadership um, values. Um, and I need to show that uh, I'm working collaboratively across the system. Yeah, I think that's a very good leadership value to have. Um, and it <laughs> And it does also sound like, you know, the building resilience and the, you know, making sure teams are working together also links to collaboration, which I had thought would come up in the podcast, um, which I'd like to talk to you about now, because you were a keynote speaker at this year's Digital Health Virtual Summer School, and you made some really interesting points, actually, about the need for better collaboration between the centre and local systems. And I think it could also potentially be expanded, sorry, to better collaboration just across national systems as well. Like, as you said, there's a lot of confusion about what NHS Digital and NHSX actually do and like what, what differs. Um, so can we expand on that a little bit? Do you think that all parts of the NHS are collaborating as well as they could be? Um, I think by defi definition, no. I mean, let's not forget, this is incredibly difficult. Mm. The NHS rep represents 10% of our entire economy in the UK. Yeah. So getting that number of people, that number of organisations to collaborate you know, perfectly all of the time is an incredibly difficult task. However, there are some things I think we can do that would really make a big difference. Mm -hmm. um, so actually, as an example, just before recording this with you um, uh, this afternoon, I had some time with Sonia Patel, who works in NHSX, and her role is managing the rela relationship with the front line. Um, yeah. And we were talking about actually, how can we start to improve our communication channels so that we're not sending different messages, for example, from X and D. Um, how can we uh, actually use those channels of communication that, that Sonia is building up to start to inform the portfolio of priorities that we should be working on at the centre? So mm -hmm. I think if we get some of those actually relatively easy things right, it enable, enables us to work far more effectively, far more efficiently, and deliver some of the things that are really needed as priorities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I know as an example that um, actually pretty much in any organization I've worked in in the last number of years, some of the pain points that are felt at the front line 
are really not very well understood centrally, but they're just so important. Things like, um, you know, having a multitude of different systems all with different usernames and passwords that you have to log on differently to every mm -hmm. time you want to move to the systems. Or, all of those kind of really hygiene things dramatically affect the employee experience, which is so important when you've got an employee workforce the size of the NHS. Um, yeah. so, so I think working collaboratively helps us understand that mm -hmm. and helps us get the priorities right um, for the broader picture. Yeah, well, um, if you need a good publication to streamline any communications, I know of one. <laughs> so, just going to get that plug Noted. in there. <laughs> any exclusives you've got, send them my way. Um, so, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago about the need to, you know, lead by example. So, do you think that good collaboration needs to come from the top down? And if it does, how does you know the centre go about setting an example on this? So. Absolutely, it comes from the top down. Um, so the phrase uh, shadow of the leader is something you know, I picked up on several years ago. Um, actually, as a senior leader in, in an organization, um, the people who are working around you look at your behaviors and, and if your behaviors don't match your words, then you know, that dissidence um, has, a, has a profound impact. So if I'm saying, Actually, collaboration is really important to me. But you know, over a cup of coffee, I'm openly criticizing colleagues and that sort of stuff. That dissidence has, has as I say, a profound impact. It, it it gives a message that although I'm talking about collaboration, it's something I don't believe in. Mm. Um, conversely, if what people see is me reaching out, um, trying to understand, not just taking the party line for NHSD, but looking to understand the pressures, the concerns, the, the needs of other parts of the organization, then I think people see that. And actually, first of all, it, it sends a very clear message to uh, other teams that we're working with that actually we really do care what you think and you know how, how we're supporting you. Um, but but also it, it demonstrates that um, you know, to the people around me that, that those values are important. So I think the shadow of the leader is one of the most important things that uh, that any leader can um, uh, can get right. Yeah, I agree with that absolutely. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit more about resilience now because um, I think I'd like to sort of expand on some of the points you made earlier. Um, and unfortunately, that does mean we have to talk about COVID. <laughs> I think we're all we're all probably over mentioning COVID, but I can't have you on the podcast without talking about the fact that you've stepped into the role of interim CEO at NHS Digital at a really, really interesting time. We're kind of recovering from the pandemic, but also preparing for winter, which is, you know, you know, figures are worrying and I don't think we're quite out of it yet. But I wanted to ask you how you see the NHS recovering from the pandemic and what role that digital has to play in that. So I think you're right. The, um, the winter pressures are already on us mm -hmm. and we're only at the beginning of September uh, so it's only going to get more difficult over the next number of months and we've got a work workforce across the whole organization who's been under massive pressure for um for quite a long time I think I'm, I'm going to start off, off actually talking about it from a personal level mm -hmm. um I, I know from personal experience that um I only perform at my best when I'm looking after my own resiliency. Um, yeah. 
So uh, I need to make sure that I'm doing what I can to um, stay fit and healthy, to sleep properly, to, to actually take breaks when I need to take breaks um, because of the, my, otherwise my performance isn't great and um, you know, I'm, I'm not working particularly efficiently. Uh, and again, that, that shadow of the leader thing, it's really important other people see me doing that too yeah. um, because they also need to look, look after their health and you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so that, that's on a personal level, that's really important. Uh, that we all look after our own health and Absolutely. resiliency, but as an organisation uh, and leading a you know a, a large organisation um, that's supporting the NHS to deal with um, COVID, uh, I need to do everything I can to ensure that we've got the right amount of resource, we've got the right people in the right place doing the right thing, and and I, I'm going to come back to the priorities word again. Mm -hmm. that what we're doing is focusing on things that are real priorities and not doing some of those things which might be nice to have but aren't massively important um, aren't as important as just as responding to uh, to the pandemic so uh, i think there is a num there are a number of things that we need to do in terms of how we can help these days everything we do in pretty much any walk of life is supported by technology in one way or another and that's mm -hmm. absolutely true in um uh, in the NHS as it is in other parts of our lives. So uh, yeah, stuff like, um, you know, we're, we're running a pilot at the moment using the um, the pathways work that we've done in emergency departments that where we're getting people to come in to, well, people arrive in an emergency, an emergency department and they're given a, uh, an iPad and they go through effectively the triage that um, the pathways goes, goes through. And, um, to determine whether or not they need to be in ED or whether they can be diverted off mm. to somewhere else. We've piloted did that in one hospital. That's been incredibly successful in terms of managing workload in ED. And as a result, we're looking very quickly to roll that out as a um, further pilot in 30 other hospitals. So that's one small example of where uh, technology and digital can make a pretty, pretty significant um improvement to the efficiency within hospital there are there are of course many other examples as well um so you know I, I, we need to work really very very closely with colleagues in um nhs england and at the front line to to understand where the real point pain points are and what digital can do to help yeah absolutely and i think we've at digital health we've written about a few of those um programs as well uh it's just been a massive change hasn't it like technology's become so prevalent uh, in healthcare and I think more and more patients uh, importantly are engaged in it because um, then on the other side of things you've got the technology that's helping patients stay home and maybe not do a really long round trip for an outpatient appointment and things like that um, so what kind of so on so on the same flavor of that remote technology is obviously taken off and is probably yes. likely to be here to stay a little bit more permanently post-pandemic more so than it probably was before covid so what do you think are the technologies that are likely to stay around or are likely to continue to be used quite significantly since when the pandemic is, whenever the pandemic is over? <laughs> so I think for all of us, a lot of things have changed during uh, the pandemic. I, yeah. uh, my, um, my, the way I work has changed dramatically. So I spend an awful lot of my time working remotely on, um, and I, we're, we're on a Zoom call now rather than face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. um, and actually that, that 
has been translated into how we deliver healthcare as well. So uh, if I have an appointment with my doctor, that's more likely to be um, on the phone or on a, um, a video call than it is face-to-face right now. At least that's my personal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those things will change and actually can significantly improve efficiency uh, as a result. Um, there's, I, I think some of the lessons from the pandemic um, have shown us what the power of data is um, in in the provision of healthcare. Yeah. So I think a really good example of that would be the shielded patients list. Mm-hmm. So our ability on a national level to identify the people who we need to take extra care of and make sure that we protect them uh, to a greater degree from, from this virus has been actually quite transformational in the way that we've we've managed the situation. Um, and there are many other ways that we, we could use data to improve um, both healthcare, but also um, improve health, if, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Obviously yeah, that does Those make two sense. things are different. Um, so I think COVID has really shown the power of, uh, of data, um, to which you're probably going to be uh, going to ask me about uh, GP data sharing, which has obviously <laughs> been in the news. In fact, I think that really hit the hit the news on almost exactly the day I took over as chief executive. I think NHS it did. Digital. <laughs> yes, um, and uh, so so there is immense um, insight that can be taken from the the incredible data sets that we have. We need to find a way to get the public to support us to enable us to use that data for the benefit of of the UK population in the way that we've been able to during COVID-19. Yeah, and that was actually going to be my next question because obviously <laughs> I can't I can't have you on without asking because um, obviously there, it, it did cause a bit of controversy and there was a lot of concern from patients and privacy groups. Um, and I think there always is when we're talking about the use of patient data. Um, but obviously the use of patient data has a wealth of benefits that you know the nhs is going to are going to benefit from so how do we go about getting patients and everyone on board with this and maybe were there any lessons learned in the way that gd was it gpdpr yep oh it's a mouthful of gpdpr gpdpr gdpr there's too many acronyms um but were there any lessons learned in the way that potentially that was handled and how it might be handled again in the future? Um, oh, yes, lots of lessons. Um, <laughs> so I think, I think the first lesson is that you can, you can never over-communicate. So, um, yes, getting people on board with it, well, which is the phrase you used, I think that's important. The mm-hmm. most important thing is we give citizens um, enough information that, so they can take an informed choice. So whether citizens decide to opt out or not of uh, GP data sharing um, should absolutely be their choice, but we need to make sure, sure they're properly informed. And I don't think we've done a good enough job of properly informing them. And, and we will do that before we, uh, before we get going with this program again. Um, and, and I guess one of the things I've learned in the short time, time that I've been at NHSD, and one of the things that's perhaps quite different to other roles that I've had in the private sector has been the importance of making sure that you take the general public with you. Um, Mm -hmm. And you can only do that. I'm going to come back to the, uh, I used the trust word earlier when I was talking about collaboration and people working with people. 
actually as an organization i think nhs digital need to be incredibly open with everything that we do you know we're, we're a public body we're here for the public good and we should be um, very open about everything we're doing um, and i think we are broadly pretty open about all all that we're doing around you know existing data sharing agreements mm. but actually we need to take that next to the next level and i think we need to be um as good as anybody else better than anybody else in terms of <laughs> our openness um because ultimately this data belongs to all of us it's an it's a national asset um that has immense value and i don't mean value in terms of commercial terms or you know financial terms i mean in the, in terms of the insight that it can give to help the um the health of all of us and our families and our friends yeah yeah it definitely has immense benefits and i think it must be quite hard going up um against a lot of misconceptions about how data is used i think like i'm in a fairly privileged position that i write about it all the time and i understand it but i guess a lot of patients don't actually understand how their data is going to be used. And there's also a lot of very unhelpful information out there from, I mean, I'm not naming publications, but there's obviously, it's headline grabbing. And there's also, there's always a lot of misinformation out there that does cause concern. So how, as an organisation, do you do you challenge that? And do you change that to make sure that patients are really well informed? Well, that, that's why I talk about the openness, because we, we do need to be very open about all that we're doing and, and why we're doing this and how we're doing it this and for you know those geeks amongst us we need to be able to talk <laughs> in in detail about what we're doing to protect the data so that it, it can't get um uh can't get stolen can't get accessed by people that don't have entitlement to access it that sort of stuff um i think we also need to recognize that for a lot of people um this whole uh topic can get confused with um you know the, the um this is a a government data steal type narrative yeah. it's this the 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 citizen against the establishment and that, that's actually a very difficult um uh argument to for, for an organization like nhsd or the nhs in general to to fight against like all we can do is just be really honest and open about what we're trying to achieve why we're trying to achieve it so that people can see both the positive benefits and what we're doing, what we're trying to do to protect people's data as well. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. think that is, that's probably the way forward through it. Um, there's another topic that I wanted to talk to you about while I've got you on the podcast as well, um, and that is diversity. Um, so then just digital recently set some fairly ambitious targets, I thought, around diversity uh, in the organisation. Uh, for those listeners who aren't aware, uh, of the targets. NHS Digital employs around 3,500 people across England and it is aiming for 19% of its staff to be Black, Asian or from a minority ethnic group by 2025. And it's also set ambitions for 14% of its staff to be disabled and 50% to be female by 2025. Um, so those are, those are some big numbers. I think currently around one in five NHS employees are from a Black, Asian or minority ethnic background. Um, so yeah, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about those those goals um, and maybe what the current breakdown of staff is at NHS Digital. So how far have you got to go? Yeah, so the um, the challenge is actually slightly more difficult than that also um, because I want that to be reflected at all levels in the organisation. Mm. Um, so more junior level levels of the organisation, we're closer to those targets. But at senior levels, there are too many people bluntly like me um <laughs> uh white middle-aged male um 
and and actually, I need to. Oh, I do reflect on the fact that probably through my career, one of the reasons I'm able to do the job I'm doing is because I do happen to be white, a white male. Um, yeah. And um, I, I started my career with Hewlett Packard a long time, time ago, back in 1987. And um, Hewlett Packard at the time, you know, California and West Coast US company, I think was very forward thinking in terms of diversity. And even back then we were talking an awful lot about diversity and the value of having um, uh, people from different backgrounds in your organization that will bring different things, different ways of thinking, um, perhaps represent customers in, in different ways. Um, and, and so I was, I was kind of brought up early in my career, recognizing the value of diversity um, in an organization, in its output, in its culture. Um, and, and I found it quite difficult, not just here, but in previous organizations as well, where in, based out of the UK, where there is what I would describe a diversity problem, where mm-hmm. you know the, the senior management are dominated by generally white men. And now that's changing. Yeah. It's you know white men and increasingly white women. Um, but there's a large segment of our pop- population who um, are I'm not going to use, well, I will use the word excluded. They, 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 they don't generally reach the same yeah. uh, levels in an organisation. And I think that's a problem. It's a problem partly because it's just not right. It's not fair. But actually, bluntly, and it goes back to the resiliency question, we're missing out on a massive amount of talent who we should be helping, mentoring, coaching to get to those levels of an organisation so we can become a better organisation. So yeah. it, it's a very challenging target for us because, you know, we, it's not like we, um, uh, we can suddenly say we want to recruit um, enough people to you know, meet our targets because that, that'll mean that actually pretty much all of our recruits would have to be um, you know, from, from uh, ethnic minorities. Yeah. And that's, that's a really difficult place for it to be. But, you know, I'm intent that we uh, pursue that as hard as we can because I think it's important for the organisation. Yeah. And on a personal level, I think it's really refreshing to hear you say that you're aware of the fact that your career's gone well because you're a white male. I think sometimes there's a lot of unawareness of people's privilege. I think it's really important that when you're in a privileged position, you're aware of it so that you can do what you can do to improve diversity wherever you're working. Um, so that's yeah. a very refreshing I'm, I'm thing hoping to hear. That, I'm, I'm hoping that's not the only reason. No, sorry if I suggested that. Without doubt, it's contributed. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, there's no doubt it's contributed. Yeah, and um, I think being aware of that is really important because then it, I think it just means that you're more aware of how to help others, um, which I think is obviously very important, um, which leads me to asking you how you're planning on addressing these gaps in the organization have you got any plans in place for staff recruitment um so yes yeah, i mean if, one thing that's helping us is that, again that organizational resiliency part of that we're looking to do a lot of recruitment and um one of the challenges is of course whenever you don't go out and recruit typically um particularly in the tech sector typically the people you get applying for jobs are people who are a bit like me mm-hmm. um, and so we need to be much better at reaching out to certain communities and uh, explaining why NHSD would be an absolutely awesome place to work mm-hmm. um, for people of those communities um, we need to be looking much more at um, 
uh, I, I think early career staff working closely with universities who have a very diverse population of students. Um, so there's a number of ideas that we've got of uh, kind of reaching out into different communities uh, and encouraging them to think about careers with NHSD. So mm. it's not um, it's not so much about um, you know it, uh, moving only to only I don't know um, uh, having um, shortlists with um, certain cohorts in the shortlist. Um, it needs to be about encouraging encouraging a much broader population of people to start to look at NHSD as, a, as an attractive place to work yeah um, and I think inevitably we will have to, to think very carefully about um, you know how we how we make selections fair to all I mean there's lots mm. of research that's been done that demonstrates that if you if your name uh, looks like it's not a you know um, kind of name that belongs to uh, somebody who's from uh, you know a a white background like me um but perhaps perhaps you're african or indian you're less likely to get through to an interview mm. that can't be right can it so no. we need to address those problems as well yeah absolutely i think yeah i completely agree with that um and i think it's it's also about just making people aware that they are able to apply i think there's a big problem especially as you say with you know management level in the nhs that not everyone looks like they do so it's making it obvious that you can actually apply for the job and you're very welcome. And I think that's a really important, important point to touch on as well. Um, so my next question on this one, um, and I think there's there's so many benefits, so I don't know if you're going to be able to list them all, but I wanted to talk about, you know, what are the benefits of having a much more diverse workforce from, you know, the ground up? So, uh, I mean, the, the first that I, I've already mentioned is is around just having access to um, a, a diversity of talent. Um, it, it is incredibly difficult, especially at the moment, um, getting good talent through the door. Mm. And if we restrict ourselves to you know fifty percent of the population, uh, that doesn't help us. Yeah. So broadening out that talent base is uh, is important. Um, uh, it's um, I think actually it helps with corporate culture. Having that diversity is um, makes somebody somewhere a much better, much more interesting place to work. And I've I've worked in places which um, you know where the where the corporate culture is just really not very pleasant. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, that's correlated with an organisation that's populated by you know dominated by um, by white men, um, and uh, it, it doesn't encourage the sort of um, uh some of the people focused uh culture that i really value mm-hmm. so um i think contributing to a diverse corporate culture is really really important yeah. um also i think it's important particularly in the in the sector that we're in that we reflect the um society that we serve mm-hmm. so the um you know we we've done quite a lot of work around how do we make sure that our digital services are accessible to to all um and whether that's language or people with um uh, disabilities whatever it might be you know those things are, are, are really important um that people see this as a service that's there for everybody not just for a certain part of the population yeah. um so i think there's there's lots and lots of benefits um and i've just listed three there yeah, no, I agree. And I think as well, if you're designing technology and it's only being designed by a certain cohort of people, 
it's not going to work for another cohort of people because it hasn't even been thought about. Um, so it's, yeah, yeah actually, it's really Andrew, I was I, I did a um, had a session yesterday, maybe yesterday day before, with some of our team who were writing. Um, actually, sounds a bit uh, bland, a service manual, um, but but this is all about um, helping to um, helping people to understand how to create digital products um, mm-hmm. that um, take into account the needs of uh, a diverse population. And I, I talk about kind of um, different languages, but you know, equally, if you're um, if you're from certain backgrounds, then certain words make a you know make a big difference to how you respond to to what you read. So you know, lots of lots of kind of nuances in there. The actually, unless unless you lived somebody else's life experience, you wouldn't understand that. So I started yeah. to write down those guidelines that help people who are doing, designing digital services to take those things into account. Um, is is one one example of what we're doing as an organisation actually to become become more diverse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a whole wealth of benefits, and I think this is personally a topic I could speak about for hours. Um, but I am aware that we are running out of time, so I just wanted to wrap up the podcast by asking you, you know, what's next on your agenda? Is there anything coming up you can give us a sneak peek on? Um, I understand if you can't give us all of the details, <laughs> but something would be nice. Um, so. I mean, I've, I've talked about the areas of priority, and for me, the the next thing is working through how we at the centre, who are, you know, running the the technology um, portfolio, if you like, between NHSX and NHSD, can work really closely with NHS EI on the recovery, particularly. So for me, that that feels like the most important show in town. Yeah. Um, we need to make sure that the NHS can um, run successfully through the win- winter and with as, as little um, problem to the service we provide as possible. And I think the digital teams have a big, big part to play in that. Mm. So you know, I want to work very closely with Matthew Gould and Tim Ferriss um, to ensure that we are doing everything we can to respond appropriately and in a coordinated way um, to support with that recovery effort because yeah. it matters deeply to all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. It's a big piece of work you've got coming up. Um, I don't envy you on that one. I really don't. It sounds it sounds stressful and difficult. Um, but um, that is actually all we've got time for on the podcast. We have very quickly hit our half an hour. But Simon, it's been so great having you on Digital Health Unplugged. I think we covered so many topics. Thank you so much for joining me. And of course, to all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget Digital Health Unplugged is published fortnightly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and the usual podcast platforms. So you can give us a follow on any of those to keep up to date with what we're doing. And if you've got a podcast suggestion, we are really keen to hear from you. You can get in touch on podcast at digitalhealth.net. That's it for this episode. We'll catch you in two weeks time. You've been listening to Digital Health Unplugged. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more episodes or to keep up to date with what Digital Health Unplugged is doing, you can give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast channel. If you want to know more about Digital Health, our news and events, you can head on over to digitalhealth.net.